One of the phrases you hear often in the monastery, whether it's people coming for a retreat, lay people, or somebody coming to train for ordination, they often say that they've had enough of the world, had enough of lay life and the worldly life. It's part of the, one of the causal factors for coming to practice the Dhamma. We've had enough of suffering. Maybe had enough of pleasure seeking, doing different things that may be interesting, entertaining, but can only provide temporary satisfaction. Occasionally even you hear people say <coughs> they've had enough of helping other people. <coughs> Not that they don't see it as a good thing, but they realize they also have to help themselves. So in that sense they've had enough It's one of the reasons people can give themselves to the practice of meditation, sitting, walking meditation, because they have that sense of having had enough of other things. So they're, will so they're willing to take the time just to sit or walk and train their mind. Lumpur Cha used to talk about how insight will arise when all the path factors are working together in harmony. <coughs> he used to emphasize harmony all the time in his teachings, both the harmony of the Sangha, the community on the outside, and the harmony of the factors of the path on the inside. <clears throat> because one of, <clears throat> one of the insights the Buddha had is that just as suffering arises from a multitude of different causes and factors influencing each other, so the insight that leads to liberation, realization, also comes out of different factors and causes influencing the mind, influencing the mind of the practitioner. So Lumpur Cha would remind people that there are many aspects to the practice and these work together. There's no one thing. <clears throat> we have to have a multitude of approaches and be willing to develop different aspects of the path. 
And we talk about the path as being eight factors. <coughs> then they reduce it down to sila samadhi panya. People used to ask, well, which one is most important? What should we develop first? On paper we say sila samadhi panya, but maybe we look at the Eightfold Noble Path, we have samaditi first, which is panya. So does that mean panya is what we develop first? So Lumbo Chao might answer, yeah, that's correct. In practice, you need some wisdom first. <clears throat> so maybe that thought <clears throat> that you've had enough is wisdom coming up when, you ha when there's something in the mind that says enough traveling or trying different things or just enough of <clears throat> family life or earning money, whatever. That's already wisdom where we sense there's maybe something more in life or we're looking more deeply at our life. We come, <clears throat> we come to practice the Dhamma because we already have some insight, <clears throat> some wisdom arise that sees the benefit of pursuing this lifestyle. Some aspects of that wisdom Sometimes they talk about even sense of fear, you might say a wise fear, where we realize that the true nature of existence is impermanent, and the things of this world are impermanent. <coughs> and what's impermanent is not very reliable. And what's impermanent you can't take as a self. There's no sub substantial self or anything that you can control or own in that which is impermanent. So this gives rise to a sense of fear or uncertainty, but coming out of wisdom, where we start to realize what we often take for granted in a more casual sense is actually not very reliable and not a source of real safety or security for our mind. Especially when you read the Buddhist teachings and hear talks and those kind of insights start to arise. <clears throat> Often we think back, you realize how you know, when you're born, like today somebody brought a baby for a blessing, just a few weeks old, as soon as you're born, you're given a name <clears throat> and the delusion of self starts. It's just automatic. You can't really blame anyone, but it's the way our society and culture works because it's coming from or filled with a lot of unenlightened people. So as soon as someone's born, we give them a name and start to shape and condition the sense of self some sense that there's something solid and continuous. Depending on the gender of the baby, if it's a girl, we tend to tell them how pretty they are and encourage them to have pretty clothes and look pretty, look attractive all the way through their childhood. 
it's a boy, <coughs> the stereotype tends to be more pushing athleticism and strength and various skills. So from the word go, this sense of a solid, continuous self becomes established. It's only when maybe we're fortunate enough to hear the Buddha's words or hear some teachings that we question that. And that's maybe what brings us to practice. You start questioning <clears throat> what you took as a self, but just questioning and reasoning isn't enough. <clears throat> what we also have to do is learn to direct the mind to pay attention to the truth, to look more deeply. So that's where we need to develop all the path factors to support that practice of looking deeply and actually revealing the truth, showing the mind the truth of the way things are, to break through delusions and attachments that we've held on to maybe for a long time. So we start with some wisdom, and that may even be with a bit of fear or nervousness about what it's all about, where we're going, what life is, what's the purpose of it all. And then we need to build on that by practicing. We have the whole Eightfold Noble Path which we're developing. As Ajahn Chah used to say again, what really leads to the deepening of our wisdom and understanding is the development of mindfulness and clear comprehension. Practice regularly, over and over again, directed to the four foundations of mindfulness, body, feelings, mind, and dhammas. <clears throat> Both wholesome dhammas, unwholesome dhammas, coming to understand the way they affect the mind and how to liberate the mind. I used to say mindfulness, clear comprehension, like a couple of friends that support each other, training the mind to pay attention, to be aware, to know from moment to moment. And wisdom is like a third friend that comes along to actually investigate the truth. And these three friends are what you might say lift up the practice, or lift up the mind, as if lifting, lifting up a heavy object. And when we start to practice mindfulness, you can't help but very quickly realize how true what the Buddha taught is. The words of the Buddha obviously come from an enlightened mind that's seen the way things are. <clears throat> These delusions and attachments we've held on to and been caught up in for so long immediately are challenged. They just come into sit meditation just for an hour or two 
When you start paying attention to what's going on, you train your mind, bring up some mindfulness. You can't help but notice how impermanent everything is. <clears throat> the person who walked into this meditation hall at the beginning of this evening is not, not the same. You are not the same as you were half an hour ago. Your whole body has already changed a bit. Your mental activity is changing, feelings are changing. As you practice mindfulness, you know, this has been revealed. You can't predict exactly how you'll feel five minutes from now. Even what thoughts, sense impingement will be coming up. Once you start to hold your mind <clears throat> in check with the practice of mindfulness, then these truths start to become apparent. So then we start asking, well, what, what can we rely on? What's really dependable if everything's changing? What's that insight, that knowledge? On the one hand, it's discomforting or disconcerting. But on the other hand, it's a release because we can also see how much suffering there is, clinging on to an idea of a fixed self and attaching to and identifying with all our different physical and mental activity, constantly worrying about, say, health. Like someone was saying they're walking John Crumb yesterday and it got painful knee, so they stopped immediately worrying about their health. Is the walking meditation going to cause them some kind of health problem? It's typical of us as human beings, always worrying about the body, because we identify with it as self. Or our mental activity, worrying about the future, regrets and concerns about the past, Endlessly planning, endlessly wondering what we'll do next, where we'll go and so on. How much we've identified with all that so far in our life. <clears throat> but now we, by applying mindfulness, investigating, we see how all unreliable it is. This is what the Buddha was pointing to. Just teaching your mind to pay attention to the truth and then question. And when we question what is a self, even the very question is something that maybe we've asked the wrong question. We often say, well, what is this self? That's assuming there is a self or something that we're taking as a self. Maybe there's no self anyway. So we don't even need the question in the first place. As humans, we tend to start from that point. So what is the self? Is the self the body? Is it feelings, thoughts? But who says there should be a self anyway? As we start to meditate, you know, even the questions start to seem unnecessary. 
you bring up more mindfulness then the mind goes quiet maybe they don't, you don't even need the question but of course it's a useful way to train the mind asking questions answering them reflecting wisely so we can go that way ask questions is the self the body is the self in the thoughts the feelings the memories or not or these things dhammas and conditions that arise and pass away in their nature <coughs> If we really want to uproot the cause of our suffering, living in this world, then we have to start asking this, these questions or investigating in this way. <clears throat> really looking more deeply at what, what's going on in the body, in the mind. Learning to bring up mindfulness and direct it just to exactly what's, what's there, what do we have. So as we're sitting here, <coughs> go through the 32 parts of the body. Put your attention on each of the 32 parts, hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, the flesh, the bones, bone marrow, heart, liver, kidneys, lungs, on through all the 32 parts. Just go through them back and forth. Where is there anything that's stable in that? Where is there anything that you can really control or make yours in all of that? And this isn't something we can we only practice when we're sitting or walking <clears throat> whatever activity you're involved in we can turn bring up mindfulness directed to the body at any time you're doing a chore you're just walking through the forest or eating and you turn to contemplate this body bring up mindfulness directed to the body and observe the changing nature of the body. You know, you, from one, one photograph to the next, <clears throat> one week to the next, and so on. You know, from head shaving day to head shaving day, how the hair grows, how the nails grow. With the conditions of the weather, we get tanned and then we lose our tan. We get scrapes and bumps. <clears throat> Our skin goes dry, becomes soft, peels off. We get fatter, we get thinner. Different experiences with the body, the hunger, feeling full, pains and aches, and feeling good. On and on it goes as you start to direct attention to the body see how it's a mass of changing phenomena, physical phenomena. They're related and they affect each other, but ultimately beyond your control.
when you think about it, like somebody was saying, even there's this desire to have something that's unique, that's really me in the body. So they, they were clinging on to the idea that DNA is me, mine, my DNA is not the same as anyone else's. <clears throat> Which in one sense you could say, well, maybe true, so, so you're your DNA. <laughs> maybe they give you a little code to tell you what your DNA is, that's you, that's what you can feel good about. It doesn't help you at the end of your life. Your DNA still breaks up and goes back to the earth and back to the elements. And this body is a constant changing, fluctuating, unreliable collection of elements. And this is what's teaching the mind to let go, not to identify so strongly. Whenever you have a sensual or sexual desire for another being, you know, they're made up of exactly the same kind of elements. <clears throat> the Buddha said the body is just a nest bed of disease. So if you're infatuated with your own body, you're infatuated with a, just a place where disease hides and is constantly being kind of nurtured, propagated. You fall in love or infatuated with someone else's body, same, it's really just a collection of disease. Because the body is prone to go wrong. <clears throat> it doesn't last, <clears throat> it doesn't last, it doesn't stay pristine, it's constantly changing, degenerating, gets sick, gets injured. If you really direct mindfulness to observe that, moment by moment, your mind can't help but see that. Whenever it thinks of the body or sees a body or starts to bring out images of a body, look at one's body, other people's, then that insight becomes, comes up straight away. Whether it's the unattractive side or the, the dukkha of a body, the uncontrollability of a body, there's different aspects, but these insights just become very, very clear. So there's not much to get infatuated with anymore. The mind goes quiet because of mindfulness directed to the body. You're no longer <clears throat> so worried about it. So the fears and concerns, the worries drop away. And it's a much better way to be. The mind is happier. <clears throat> yes. Mindfulness directed to the body, seen in each dukkha anatta in the body, gives rise to bliss, the bliss of letting go. And when we do let go of identification, the mind is happy, releasing the burden, putting down the burden. Uh, we like to do it artificially, so you see nowadays, you see people going along in the city, they kind of try to blot out the world. They've got their headphones on and they've kind of got their coat collars up and they withdraw into themselves <clears throat> and wonder why they get very stressed. 
because often they're very not very mindful and very distracted because of that. When you practice mindfulness directed to the body though, it's like you're opening up, you're seeing the reality of things. You're no longer distracted. The mind can step back. It no longer needs distractions to get away from things. It's quite happy even in unpleasant situations because there's correct understanding there. As we start training mindfulness, the, the wisdom comes up then. Clear comprehension, wisdom, you understand the correct way to look at this body. You know, when we begin the practice, we tend to be just fall prey to our more negative, more destructive emotions. So we have pleasure and pain, it gives rise to desire and lust or aversion. But the more you practice, the more you bring up mindfulness, and the more evenness of mind you have. Instead of <clears throat> forming opinions about bodies, our bodies, other people's bodies, getting caught up into identification in that way, we have a much more balanced view and more at ease within ourselves, even when we're ill or injured or tired, or even when we're confronted, you know, sometimes we're confronted by suffering, so you go somewhere and you see someone who's very ill, sick or deformed or something wrong with them physically. Or when you're confronted by the, somebody who's very beautiful and attractive, you know, the, the emotions of the mind don't become so extreme anymore. Because you know, in the end, you know, it's the same material matter, whether it's somebody who's very beautiful, somebody not very beautiful, ugly, or average, doesn't really matter. It's the same collection of the 32 parts and the four elements. There's a great evenness of mind, freedom. Don't have to react in the same old ways. As we <clears throat> carry on practicing, then these insights can be directed towards the mental activity, which is obviously more subtle feelings, the mind itself, thought formation, sense consciousness. You see the value, of the more you practice, of practicing sense restraint. As you practice mindfulness, clear comprehension, you see the danger of letting your senses run wild. So just in the course of a day, if you let your senses go, you're not very mindful or restrained as you see things, hear things, or in the way you, the choices you make, what you see, what you hear. The more you practice, the more you see the the danger. It's the these are the doorways that you let Mara into your mind. If you're not restrained, not careful as you contact the world, then the world will cause a lot of suffering inside longing for things you don't have, aversion for things you've unwittingly come in contact with. So 
So as bhikkhus we have to learn sense restraint, again mindfulness, indriya sangwara, clear comprehension of what we're dealing with and use the lifestyle, the quietness of the forest, the vinaya, to help protect ourselves so the mind isn't stirred up too easily or goes out too easily until mindfulness and insight is established and strong. We have to protect ourselves. There's the simile of the, the little quail. I was thinking of that the other day, like in the summer when the grass is long, you get these ground nesting birds. I don't know whether they're quails or something related to them. You walk through the long grass and they get excited and fly up because they've been nesting on the ground. It's the simile of uh, the practitioner who <clears throat> knows how to practice sense restraint and keep their mind and mindfulness within, they say, within the domain, the sphere of their body to protect themselves from getting caught in Mara's trap through the senses. It's like the little quail. And when it, the Buddha said when it's in its field, its domain, <clears throat> it knows how to protect itself from the predators, the hawks who can swoop down on it. Because when it's in its field, it's the color of its feathers blends in with the earth. And it knows how to camouflage itself and protect itself. And then there's one little quail that was a little bit too adventurous, went outside of its domain, outside of its field, to a new area where its camouflage wasn't so good <clears throat> and it wasn't so sharp, knowing how to protect itself in this new area. So a hawk swooped down and picked it up the way they do. It doesn't kill it instantly, it just grabs it in its claws and flies off. So the little quail is regretting its mistake going outside its domain, starts voicing its regrets, saying, oh, if only I'd stayed where I usually am in my own field, my own domain, you wouldn't have got me. And the hawk is very arrogant because it's a hawk. He says, of course I'd have got you. I can get you anywhere. I'm faster, stronger than you are. The little quail said, no, 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 if I was in my local field, you wouldn't have got me. If I'd stayed there, I'd be safe. And the hawk takes the bait and says, oh, in that case, I'll challenge you. I'll take you back to your home, and I'll see if I can catch you. Of course, I'll be able to catch you. So it drops the little quail back in its field. <clears throat> it's sitting there on the earth, but it knows what to do now. It's in its local place, it's within its domain. So the hawk sees it and swoops down full speed. And the little quail is sitting next to a clod of earth. <clears throat> At last moment just steps behind, hops behind the clod of earth. And the hawk smashes its chest on the clod of earth and dies. It's like the practitioner who stays within the body, within the domain, sense restraint, doesn't let their minds flow out through the senses too much, and they're protected. They flow out into the world through the senses, 
and they're just going to feed the mind full of data, information, some of which will stir up unwholesome desires, negative states of mind, greed, lust, anger, jealousy. So we have to learn how to protect our practice, stay within the sphere of this body, stay within our domain. It's a protection, it gives us a lot more mental energy, <coughs> mindfulness, less stirred up. It's one of the challenges of the modern world. We are exposed to information and mental objects from all over the world now. Every kind of news, every kind of information, every form of image, sounds, taste, smell, touch. This is probably why Lumpur Cha emphasized Indriya Samura sense restraint over and over again. It's the foundation of our practice as a bhikkhu. He used to give, give the, tell the story of the, the bhikkhu who goes on Bindabhat and goes into the village. Even when our, we're apparently restrained, our eyes cast down, walking quietly, not talking very mindfully, holding the bowl around the village. But this monk seemed to be like the model of restraint, but his ears were always open. And every bit of gossip he heard, and everything he saw out of the corner of his eye, he'd store it up in his mind. So he'd come back to the monastery <clears throat> when his guard was down, say like after the meal, with his friends, he could tell them every bit of gossip about the village, who is with who, who's doing well, who's doing badly, what's going on, who's building what. He knew everything. Even though he hadn't said a single word in the village, he'd absorbed all the information and filled his mind with it. And Jin Chao said, you know, the senses are like that. Even when we are apparently restrained on the outside, we still have to be restrained at the, the doorway of the mind. Because it's hungry. You know, even though we, we ordain, we come into the monastery, into the holy life, you know, there still is a part of the mind that hasn't had enough yet. It's still hungry for a bit more. Maybe we still have doubts, or we just have strong desire, strong attachment. So we have to keep training that, restraining it, training it, reflecting. Have we really had enough yet? Or are we like gluttons for punishment, still want a little bit more attachment, a little bit more desire, just a little bit more happiness, pleasure, and in the end, a little bit more suffering. Because that's what it means. If we keep following desire, attachment, cultivating delusion, then we get more suffering. So the Buddha said, the practice of the Eightfold Path 
four foundations of mindfulness, sila, samadhi, panya. This is the only way human beings can free themselves from suffering. This is the only way you get to the point where your mind has really had enough of the world, doesn't want any more birth, aging and death, no more desire, no more attachment. When it's truly afraid of attachment in a wise way, just knows instantly, as soon as there's desire, attachment, identification, it's going to be more suffering, going to get burnt again. The mind is that sharp. And that has to come about through repeated practice. Keep contemplating, keep establishing mindfulness, clear comprehension, and then wisdom, investigating the truth. So there's less and less doubt, and more and more clarity. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight.